On January 24, 1962, the Atlas missile scheduled to carry astronaut John Glenn into space was on the launching pad at Cape Canaveral, Florida. The United States House of Representatives passed a raise of $690 million, including a proposed hike in the first-class postage stamp from $0.04 to $0.05. The Hustler, Madison Avenue, Blue Hawaii, and Paris Blues were playing in movie theaters. And The Naked City on ABC Television presented The Contract with a teleplay by Norman Lessing and Howard Rodman. Where have you gone, Howard Rodman? Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhouse. Howard Rodman was born on February 18, 1920, in the Bronx, New York. He died December 5, 1985, in Los Angeles, California. He had earned Writers Guild of America awards for the Naked City episode, Today the Man Who Kills Ants is Coming, and The Game with the Glass Pieces, a 1964 episode of Bob Hope Presents the Chrysler Theater. In 1980, he was honored with the Laurel Award for TV Writing Achievement by the Writers Guild of America USA. He was the sixth recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award. The first was Rod Serling in 1976. The others were the team of James Fritzell and Everett Greenbaum, Ernest Canoy, and James Costigan. He contributed numerous scripts to television anthology shows, including Thriller, Mort Saul was the star of Rodman's script, Man in the Middle, broadcast on December 20, 1960, during the first season of the series. From 1960 to 1964, Rodman was a key contributor to two landmark television shows, Naked City and Route 66. From 1966 to 1973, Rodman wrote or co-wrote four notable screenplays, Madigan, Coogan's Bluff, Winning, and Charlie Varick. Three of them were directed by Don Siegel. Charlie Varick was directed by Siegel with a screenplay by Howard Rodman and Dean Reisner based on a novel by John Reese. Madigan subsequently became part of the NBC Wednesday Night Mystery Movie for the 1972-1973 season. It was part of NBC's Wheel Concept that began on Wednesday nights in 1971 with McLeod, Columbo, and Macmillan and Wife. Those shows moved to Sunday nights in 1972 and were replaced on Wednesdays with the triumvirate of Madigan, Cool Million, and Banachek. Coogan's Bluff was the basis for McLeod. Clint Eastwood starred in the film. Dennis Weaver starred in the television show. Winning was one of several car racing-themed movies produced in those days. James Garner had Grand Prix, Steve McQueen had Le Mans, and Paul Newman had Winning. Also in this general time period, Rodman had a hand in A Clear and Present Danger, The Six Million Dollar Man, 
and Harry O. The main reason I'm talking about Howard Rodman is because of Harry O. and the character Harry Orwell. Most, if not everything, I have mentioned so far can be found at IMDb, the Internet Movie Database. But not everything can be found at IMDb. There are two collections of Howard Rodman papers. One is housed at the Writers Guild Foundation Archive in Los Angeles. The other is at the Wisconsin Historical Society. Stay with me, and together we will learn more about the career of Howard Rodman and why it should not be forgotten. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. And now back to the episode. In the early days of Howard Rodman's career, radio was still the dominant medium. In the same year, 1951, that My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball, was ending on radio, and I Love Lucy was starting up on television, Rodman landed a writing assignment on the Francis Langford, Don Amici show. According to Total Television, the show premiered on September 10, 1951, about five weeks before I Love Lucy began on October 15. Jack Lemmon and his wife Cynthia acted in a segment of the program. In his biography, Lemon, Don Widener writes, In the Couple Next Door segment, Jack and Cynthia portrayed newlyweds in the post-honeymoon period. For the series, they were happily united with writer Howard Rodman, who had a knack of turning marital minutiae into a quarter hour of quality comedy material. Widener continues, Critics acclaimed The Couple Next Door, although the rest of the program came in for some lumps. Lemon gave great credit to Rodman. He wrote some really beautiful scripts, said Jack, but there was one problem. Howard would occasionally get mad as hell at the bureaucracy of large corporations such as ABC. He would come to work in an old hunting jacket and boots, and he'd be wearing a beard. He would pinch paper, pencil, paper clips, whatever he could, to needle them. He told me once he was thinking of snitching a typewriter, but couldn't get up the nerve. Then Lemon recounts a story of how Rodman disappeared for several days. I asked him what happened, said Jack, and he said he had applied for a job as an apprentice at Singer Sewing Machine Company starting at $42.50 a month and had been turned down because he lacked experience. I'll always remember that moment. Howard was furious at being passed over by Singer. Now he was being forced to return to work as a writer, for our show at ABC and for other programs such as Studio One, at a job that was earning him about $1,300 a week. 
Rodman wrote for radio shows including X-1, his adaptation of Murray Leisner's story First Contact, was broadcast on October 6, 1955. He was also writing for television shows including Escape, Danger, Actors Studio, The Silver Theater, The Ford Theater Hour, Mr. Peepers, You Are There, Studio One, and Alcoa Theater. He caught a break when Herbert B. Leonard put him on the team responsible for Naked City and Route 66. That team included another legendary writer, Sterling Siliphant, and the legendary casting director, Marion Doherty. Naked City ran four seasons and 138 episodes. Rodman wrote and co-wrote many of the episodes while serving as story supervisor slash story editor on 62 episodes. When Howard Rodman died in 1985, the Associated Press ran an obituary that concluded... A longtime union activist and board member of the Authors League, Radio Writers Guild, and Writers Guild of America, Rodman was blacklisted in the 1950s. During that period, he worked as a bricklayer. There were more ups and downs for Howard Rodman. Through them all, a legacy of fine writing and union activism. After a short break, I'll be joined by Howard's son, Adam Rodman, and we'll learn more about the life and career of Howard Rodman. For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Adam Rodman is a talented and award-winning writer himself. In 2014, he won a... Writers Guild of America West Writer Access Project Award for his script, The Real Thing. And in 2019, he won the same award for his script, Promises to Keep, the result of his lifelong concerns about the racial and class inequities in America. It's my pleasure to welcome to Where Have You Gone, Adam Rodman. Adam, welcome to Where Have You Gone, Howard Rodman. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for taking time to speak with us about your dad. I've spoken about him already and and talked about some aspects of his career, but a lot of what I have gotten into is the stuff you get off the Internet movie database and other such sources. And so it's going to be great to get some personal reflections from you about your father. And let me start at a time when you were very young, when your dad was writing on Naked City and uh, Route 66, But even before that, going back, I suppose, to before you were born, I want to ask you about how your father got off the blacklist. But I suppose first I should ask you what you know about how he got on the blacklist. I do know he was actually a member of the Communist Party. 
-hmm. And I think there was um, testimony in Congress. And basically, once you got named in one of those hearings, uh, you were blacklisted. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was very active in the Writers Guild and the union movement. And I think for a while, dug ditches. I think when he was blacklisted, (laughs) he got a union card from the Hod Carriers of America, which he carried proudly to his dying days. And then how did he get off the blacklist? Getting off the blacklist was actually a great story. Um, Rod Serling won an Emmy for a, a piece called Patterns. And CBS you know, felt it, it was the premier network, the Tiffany network. And William Paley was furious that an upstart network had gotten an Emmy and not CBS. And so he called all the producers together, his top producers, to ask how this could have happened. And there was a, a German emigre named Felix Jackson. Felix Jackson had some guts and he stood up and said, because all the good writers are blacklisted and you won't let us have them. And Paley said, who do you want? He said, I want Reggie Rose. I want Ernie Canoy, and I want Howard Rodman. And he said, done. And once you were off the blacklisted one network, you were off everywhere. I do know previous to that, and I think it may even have been CBS. They were offering to uh, let him go to work. And he said, nobody's going to let me work. I'm blacklisted. They said, no, you've been approved. And he just had to go in the approval office. It'll be pro forma. And he was going through uh, an unpleasant divorce. And the price of his being able to go back to work was to name his ex-wife as a communist, which mm. in fact she was, but neither here nor there. He took the guy's desk over <laughs> and did not go to work on that project and did not get unblacklisted until finally uh, Felix Jackson stood up. And then he eventually came under a group of people, I suppose, led by the producer Herbert B. Leonard, who produced Naked City and um, Route 66. What do you know of the pros and cons of his relationship with Herbert B. Leonard? You know, that was an interesting relationship in a bunch of ways. Herbert B. Leonard valued fine writers, and he worked with some of the best writers in television. He was incredibly cheap, and when they were shooting Naked City, they would never pay for permits. They would shoot, you know, on the fly. If they had to leave, they would. And my father was a gifted writer and obsessive and compulsive and productive. And all those things led Herbert B. Leonard to sort of let him loose. And they used to do 39 episodes a year. And he would write pretty much 39 episodes of an hour show in Naked City. And those scripts were 69 pages, low 70s. They were longer than they are now. Um, And he did that uh, by living on five pots of coffee a day and cigarettes and really sacrificing his health because nobody had ever let him write like that before, Uh, which is what he told my mother, his second wife and last wife. (laughs) At one point, she was terribly worried about him. Um, and she wanted him to slow down, to stop, to leave the show. And he said, I can't, I can't. Nobody has ever let me write like this before. I'll never be able to write like this again. Um, and the shows, some of them were quite remarkable. What, uh, again, I mentioned that you were very young when Naked City and Route 66 were on television, but the scripts survived, the programs survive on DVD. How have they influenced you? When I was in college, I wanted to be a tennis player. And I went out on the circuit, and it turns out I was a good college player and a very mediocre pro. You can't do that as an athlete, and I knew that. I also knew I could write. And so I had avoided it for a long time, 
I knew I wanted to write television and movies. And so I would come up to Los Angeles. I would grab those Naked City scripts by the dozens. I would read through them. And then I would call my father up and I'd say, okay, in this episode, you did this and then this and this. What was that about? How did you get there? And though much of it was, you know, some of it's real poetry. And who knows where that comes from? He was a skilled craftsman. Um, and so I, uh, I educated myself by reading his works. Did he encourage you or discourage you to become an entertainment writer? Um, you know, he encouraged me. He was, he was very supportive. Um, I will tell you that when I got into the American Film Institute, the first script I ever wrote, um, and it was about a man who kills his father, small as him with a pillow. <laughs> I don't think Dr. Freud would have to take long to figure that one out. We teased my father about it mercilessly. <laughs> when I showed it to him, he said, this is a very, he was not threatened. He said, this is a very fine piece of work. You did good. It sounds like most of what he passed down to you was, um, uh, I don't want to say subconscious, but from the example he set, rather than pointers on different aspects of actually doing the writing. I think what attracted me to writing, and, and I got from my father, no question, was that what he cared about was fine work. Write a little better, make something more than it was. And every time he sat down to work, he sat down to write the finest possible script that could be written from that material. And I found that attractive, uh, that lack of cynicism. Your father won the Laurel Award, which to, you know, as an outsider, that seems to me like one of the most prestigious awards that a writer can uh, be honored with. Is that the case? It is. It's, um, it's a word to give you for lifetime achievement for a body of work. Um, I think he'd won three or four or five Writers Guild Awards over the years. He'd done, you know, Naked City, he'd done Route 66. He'd done a bunch of features and a bunch of TV and was, you know, in many ways kind of a major figure. So I think it was a well-deserved award as well. And we've talked about the Guild and that your father was active in the Guild and you and your brother Howard A. have been active in the Guild is that something, again, did he encourage you to do that, or was that passed down more subconsciously? Oh, I think it was, it was passed down subconsciously, consciously. You know, we, we all, I think, had great respects for unions and the benefits that accrued. And, and you know, without the Writers Guild, you know, Writers Lives, you would have had no separation of rights. You would have had producers putting their friends' names on script, which is the practice previous Rice Guild, you wouldn't have had a pension plan or a health plan. I can tell you that the very first job I got, three weeks later, the Writers Guild went on strike, and I had to call the producer and tell him I couldn't do any more work. He would have to wait until the strike was over. And at that point, because I was a brand new baby writer, I think mm -hmm. you only had one credit, and that was my first credit. Uh, you couldn't even uh, vote. So I couldn't even vote to authorize the strike, though I would have. But I was bound by it because I, I joined the Guild. They, had, they don't do any more. It used to be if you have one credit, you'd be an associate member, and then you'd get a full membership when you get your second credit. We've talked about Naked City and, and Route 66. There was a point in there where your father, it sounds like, came to work for Universal. Is that so? And do you know much about how that happened? He'd come off of Naked City. He just had a complete nervous breakdown. He got hired to write a movie called Bandula for the Mirishes. And uh, he would write 100 pages a day, and then he would tear them up at night. He just went into a terrible depression. 
and somebody threw him an assignment. It was a friend, it was a favor. It was supposed to be a half hour pilot, and it was like 80 pages long. And he'd done all these graphics and things with, with Letra Set. But there was something next. It was called Walter the Poor Millionaire. And so they asked him if he could do it. Because it taken him six months just to write that. He said, no, 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 I'll have it for you. And he got it done in like a week. And ultimately, they, they didn't make it. But he was able to function again. And I think he'd worked with Billy Sackheim on a Playhouse 90 or a Chrysler Theater, Alcoa Goodyear, some of those. So they brought him over. And Sid Scheinberg was the number two person at Universal. And Lorraine Gary and they had been, uh, Lorraine Gary's an actress, had been friends with my parents in New York. So between those two, they took a chance and, and hired him. It was an enormously productive period, though he was constantly uh, in battle. Well, as you say, it was very productive. And there are three films in particular I want to ask you about that he did. You know, they're all universal releases. Madigan, Coogan's Bluff, and Charlie Varick all with the director Don Siegel, and with Madigan, uh, the screenplay credit goes to Henri Simoon and Abraham Polanski. On <laughs> Coogan's Bluff, it's Herman Miller, Ampersand, Dean Reisner, and Howard Rodman. And then with Charlie Varick, it's Howard Rodman and Dean Reisner. So first I want to ask you how and when did he choose to use or not use the pseudonym Henri Simon? There's a running joke in our family that no Rodman script is complete until you put your pseudonym on it. Um, okay. If he rewrote my father, he would put a pseudonym on it unless they wouldn't let him. My father knew New York better than anybody. He grew up there. He'd written all those naked cities. They had um, a very short period of time to get it done. Brought my father in. They put him up at the, I think, Waldorf Astoria, and uh, he wrote it in three weeks. And then uh, what happened was Clint Eastwood read it and said, this is fine, but these, this is a hero, and I don't play heroes, I play anti-hero. Dean Reiser to turn all the scenes around. They didn't have time to have a new script. All they could do was, you know, take them and, and sort of, of twist them a little bit. There's one amusing side note there. My father was not hurting for a large ego. Perhaps even larger would be Abby Mann's fine writer. And one morning, Don Siegel came down. He was really annoyed by my father. He said, you know, go fuck yourself. And my father said, what I do? He says, somebody sends you a bottle of champagne. You say, thank you. <laughs> because he'd send him a champagne when he'd finished the script. And my father said, well, if I'd gotten the bottle of champagne, I would have said thank you. And so they, they finally tracked it down. It turned out that Abby Mann was staying at the same hotel and the card on the champagne was addressed to the finest writer in Hollywood. And so the hotel had given it to Abby Mann, who thanked him. <laughs> a couple of years later, he found himself walking on a beach with himself and Abby Mann and Arthur Miller. He took that moment to retell the story because as big as his ego was and as big as Abby Mann's ego was, there was no question who the finest writer on the beach was that day. <laughs> With all of this writing and, you know, early there had been all of this television writing and you mentioned that your mother at one point said, you've got to cut back. And somewhere along the line, I picked up the term showrunner. What is that and where does it fit into your dad's career? His career really took place during an era where showrunner hadn't quite come into existence. So in that era... They would get the best writers to write the pilot. The pilot would be 90 minutes or two hours. 
mm-hmm. and then they would hire a staff and somebody to run the show, and it was very separate. Gradually, that began to change, and the writers became the central figure, and they became known as showrunners. My father was at the t- you know, tail end of his career when that started to happen, and my mother usually wouldn't let him run a show. He, so he would write the scripts, he would write the pilots. Sometimes he would be a consultant, as a, uh, you know, either as a courtesy or to help kind of, of guide. And I think on Harry O, they wanted to have him write, I think, all the voiceovers and be a consultant. And his agents, you know what, you can't afford what we would charge you. And so he did it actually for free as a, a thank you. He was a, a geek's geek. He loved technology. And it was 73, so it was early days of phones and wireless phones. And they got him one of the first cordless phones and had it installed in his house, and uh, he enjoyed that. Well, and you you led right into Harry O, and that's one of the reasons I'm doing a show about Howard Rodman. And Harry O, as I understand it, did not hit with the first pilot, but then there was a second pilot. Tell us that story. Sure. When, when Harry O came, my father was sick of car chases. I mean, it was, you know, it was that era. He was sick of gunfights, and so he... <laughs> He invented a character who couldn't run because he had a bullet in his back. He didn't have a gun, and he didn't have a car. He rode a bus. That was where it started. So he wrote the pilot, and everybody liked it, but they weren't quite sure what to do with it because it was different than anything they'd seen before. Mm-hmm. And so the producers came to my father and asked if he would write a note to the network and tell them why they ought to make it. And I think they were hoping for two or three pages. My father, it was excessive as always, uh, wrote this 100-page essay. Um, where he talked about what he had intended to accomplish and why and what he had achieved and what he felt he had come short on and what he, he would do differently. And on the basis of that, they commissioned a second script. I think that was Smile, Jenny, You're Dead, mm-hmm. if I recall. And then what happened is, you know, it's just unfortunate. First, there was budgetary considerations. He was down in San Diego, so they moved it to Los Angeles. And then little by little, uh, and he was not complicit with that, he wouldn't have you know, they got him a car, and they got him a gun, and it became more and more like a lot of the other things that were on. For the first couple of years there, it was kind of interesting. I've read that the producers were looking for a vehicle for David Jansen. Is that correct? Yes, it was. And, and actually, my father and David Jansen liked each other. It was interesting. During the first season, David Jansen worked very hard, showed up to the set on time, was prepared. Mm-hmm. And as the series devolved into less interesting stuff, as my father was less involved in it, he was more and more lackadaisical. I don't know exactly why that, that relationship formed, but it did. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because it, it sounds like, and I, you know, I, I've, I've read about David Jansen, the pro and the con, but one of the pros is that he was a hard worker. Another similarity between your dad and David Jansen is that they both died young. Jansen was just 48 years old when he died in 1980. With your dad, were there any warning signs? Absolutely. I mean, he had a big heart attack in 1976. He was 56 years old. He was born in 1920. Mm -hmm. And at that point, heart surgery was kind of binary. You know, you either made it out or you died on the table. I was in college. There were two kids behind me. His his financial world was not in any way uh, set. And so he decided to tough it out. And so for the next 10 years, he, you know, he had nitroglycerin and you know, he did a little bit of walking and this, that, and the other. About a third of his heart was gone. And by the time he finally had surgery, it was a more complicated surgery and he was physically you know, diminished. 
he just couldn't survive the uh, the anesthesia. He never came out of it. Mm. Yeah. Well, there was one reason when he had the first heart attack. Yes. He was writing a TV pilot, and my mother knew that he would never relax with the script half done, and so he literally finished the script longhand in the hospital room, and uh, I think he put on a bathrobe. <laughs> When the producers came, so he could, you know, appear to be healthier than he was. One of the projects that we have not talked about is um, a clear and present danger. The pilot for the senator wheel of the bold ones, but it was a show about air pollution, and I got in my notes here that that was important to your father and to William Sackheim. Yeah, I think Billy, and again, Billy was a, a very good producer creatively. And so he came to my father. And if you look at my father's work, it's sort of interesting. There, there are certainly themes in there. And a running joke was, what is Naked City about? It's about Howard Rodman and his father troubles, because he killed off more old Jews on that series. Drowned them, shot them, <laughs> dropped uh-huh. them off of buildings. It's the so, truth. Yep. And in The Senator, the, the premise was that Hal Holbrook's father had been a senator. Yes, um, and that he was, uh, you know, avoiding that world. And there was a killer smog attack. And what he finally came to realize was that he could make a difference if he engaged. And so he made the, the commitment to run. Uh, it was sort of ironic. The San Fernando Valley. It was the '60s and '70s. You know, we had smog alerts. It was you could barely see buildings through all the smog. And I remember as a kid going up to Mulholland with my father. There was a second unit up there. It was supposed to shoot some establishing shots. And we had a Santa Ana. And the entire valley was clean and clear and crisp. <laughs> and for three days, they couldn't get their shot. These are, these are the reasons that I wanted to do this program about your father. A show like A Clear and Present Danger, a show like Harry O. But I, I want to give you the last word. What do you think your father, how do you think he'd like to be remembered? My father always said that he wanted to write a little better each day. And I think he worked very hard to live up to that. I went through some of his memorabilia after he died and all his correspondence. You could see the pain in those notes as he would get whatever the requests were, and they were never really to make it better with very few exceptions. And he earned a fair amount of money, and the easiest thing in the world would have been to be cynical and just take the money and run. And instead, He sat down every single time to write the best script he knew how to write, knowing that in all likelihood he was not going to win, but he didn't care. What he cared about was getting good work done. And that's something I've always admired tremendously. Well, I think that puts a nice ending on this discussion. And Adam, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about your father, Howard Rodman. It's been a pleasure. I'm really glad you asked. It was fun to relive some of these stories. Do you have an idea for an episode of Where Have You Gone? A person, place, or thing gone but not forgotten, or forgotten but not gone, with a connection to the mid-20th century? If you do, let us know. Connect with us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone Podcast or on Twitter at WHYG Podcast. And now, back to the show. There is no 
book-length biography of Howard Rodman, but there are several books that discuss various aspects of Rodman and his work. One is TV Noir. It's the most recent of these books that I'm going to talk about now. TV Noir, Dark Drama on the Small Screen by Alan Glover, published in 2019, has an entire chapter on the series Harry O. Channeling the Past, Politicizing History in Postwar America by Eric Christensen was published in 2013 and has several references to Howard Rodman in relation to his work on the series You Are There in the chapter History, News, and You Are There. Dangerous Visions was published in 1967. Dangerous Visions, 33 original stories edited by Harlan Ellison, one of the great science fiction writers, one of the great writers. And of the 33 original stories, the inclusion from Howard Rodman is The Man Who Went to the Moon Twice. Before the story is an introduction written by Ellison that is very illuminating in regards to Howard Rodman. And here are a couple of excerpts. You are a fan of Rodman's work if you watch television at all. Because if you watch TV in even the most peripheral way, you do it to catch the best programs. And if that's the case, you have seen Rodman's work. One reason why Rodman's appearance here is a delight. He is a fighter, not merely a parlor liberal. His admonition to me never to be afraid was capped with an order to fight for what I had written. I've tried to do it, sometimes successfully. It's difficult in Hollywood, but my mentor, Howard Rodman, is the man who once threw a heavy ashtray at a man who had aborted one of his scripts and had to be restrained from tearing the man's head from his shoulders. Lastly, The Seeking Years, from 1959, edited by John M. Gunn, features three Rodman scripts from the award-winning CBS TV series Look Up and Live. There's also a new 2019 Blu-ray release of Charlie Varick, a brand-new 4K master. It's loaded with special features, including an episode of Trailers from Hell with Josh Olson and Howard A. Rodman about the film. Walter Matthau played the title character in Charlie Varick. Years later, he played the lead in Charles Grodin's film Movers and Shakers, one of my personal favorites. A theme throughout Movers and Shakers is the idea of doing something great and doing something that's about something. There's a scene late in the film that immediately jumped to my mind when Adam Rodman was talking about how his father finished a script in the hospital and the connection between Movers and Shakers and Howard Rodman and trying to do something great and something that's about something is obvious. Unlike Charlie Varick, Movers and Shakers is not available on any authorized DVD or Blu-ray, much less in a 4K master. I think that's a crime. And I hope someday that Movers and Shakers gets the release it deserves. Howard A. Rodman is an award-winning screenwriter. He was president of the Writers Guild of America West 
2015 to 2017, and he's written an outstanding novel published in 2019 titled The Great Eastern. The late Ricky Jay called it a book of confabulations, real and imagined, surprises on every page, a splendid and notable achievement. Norma Connolly was married to Howard Rodman from 1954 until his death in 1985. Her acting career stretched from the 1950s to the 1990s and included appearances in Alfred Hitchcock's The Wrong Man and the Twilight Zone episode 22. She played Ruby Anderson on General Hospital, 1979 to 1998, and she was active in the Screen Actors Guild. If you look at Howard Rodman's IMDb page, the role that Universal played in his career during the 1960s and 1970s is not immediately apparent. His four feature films of that period were all done for Universal. MCA took over Universal in mid-1962. In 1964, MCA formed Universal City Studios, Inc., Review Productions was renamed Universal Television in 1966. Universal also became closely linked with NBC Television. The films Madigan, Coogan's Bluff, Winning, and Charlie Varick were all released by Universal Pictures from 1968 to 1973. A Clear and Present Danger was broadcast March 21, 1970 as one of the NBC Saturday Night Movies. It was produced by Universal Television as a pilot for The Senator. The Senator became one of four revolving titles, albeit for just eight episodes, under the umbrella title The Bold Ones, along with The New Doctors, The Protectors, and The Lawyers. Rodman created The Man and the City for Universal Television. It ran 15 episodes from September 15, 1971, to January 5, 1972, on ABC. He was in at the beginning of The Six Million Dollar Man, and its five-season run on ABC from 1974 to 1978. His creation, Harry O., ran for two seasons, 1973 to 1976, on ABC for Warner Brothers Television. There's also The Neon Ceiling, from February 8, 1971. It stars Lee Grant and Gig Young. She won an Emmy for her performance. He was nominated. The teleplay writing on the film reads Carol Sobieski and Henri Simon, Howard Rodman's pseudonym. Sobieski was a talented writer of such stories as Casey's Shadow, Sarah Plain and Tall, and Fried Green Tomatoes. And she won the Laurel Award posthumously in 1991. She died in 1990 at the young age of 51. By early 1974, with the successful second pilot for Harry O, Smile Jenny, You're Dead, Harry O was on its way to the fall ABC TV lineup, and Howard Rodman had time to think about a new project. And that project was a proposed adaptation of Roger Kahn's book, The Boys of Summer. The Boys of Summer was a commercial and critical success when it came out in 1972, one of the best-selling nonfiction books of the year. It's considered one of the great 
baseball books of all time by many people, not everybody. And like Mark Harris's Bang the Drum Slowly, it goes beyond being just a baseball book. And the timing seemed to be right. In October 1973, the film version of Bang the Drum Slowly, which Mark Harris had adapted from his own novel, had opened successfully in movie theaters. On February 22, 1974, It's Good to Be Alive, the Roy Campanella story, was broadcast on CBS, and it seemed like the right time for an adaptation of The Boys of Summer. Howard Rodman wrote a detailed proposal to Irv Wesson at Viacom of how he would tackle such a project. And at the end he wrote, Obviously this is a project which excites me. I want to do it. Alas, the project never came to fruition. And now, as the 50th anniversary of the publication of The Boys of Summer approaches, there still has not been a theatrical film or a TV film or anything of that nature putting The Boys of Summer out in that kind of a format. And it's a shame because it has all the elements to be a successful program and Howard Rodman certainly had an interesting approach as to how he was going to tackle the project. And who knows, with today's technology and having so many more outlets than were available in the 1970s, maybe it will still come to pass. Howard Rodman's The Devlin Connection ran for 13 episodes in the fall of 1982 on NBC. Ryan's Four ran for five episodes in April 1983 with Henry Winkler as an executive producer. Winkler was also an executive producer on Rodman's final credit before his death, the 1985 TV film Scandal Sheet, broadcast January 21, 1985 on the ABC Monday Night Movie. By that time, Howard Rodman's place in the history of entertainment writing from the 1950s to the 1980s was secure, even if he had not gotten the notoriety of other writers. Let us compare Rod Serling, Patty Chayefsky, and Howard Rodman. Serling was born in 1924. He died in 1975. Chayefsky was born in 1923. He died in 1981. Rodman was born in 1920 and died in 1985. So all three were born in the 1920s. All three grew up during the Depression. All three served in the military. All three wrote for radio early in their careers. All three wrote for television in the 1950s. Chayefsky made the greatest jump into feature films from 1955 until his death in 1981. Serling and Rodman both had notable successes in feature film, if not to the level or acclaim of Chayefsky. While Serling's The Twilight Zone was on the air in its original run from 1959 to 1964, Howard Rodman was the story editor or story supervisor of Naked City from 1960 to 1962 and served in a similar capacity with Route 66 from 1960 to 1964. 
There are, of course, fundamental differences between the Twilight Zone and the combination of Naked City and Route 66. What is similar is that all three series had something to say. There are numerous books about the Twilight Zone. Thanks to the writer and actor James Rawson, there is at least one book about Naked City and one about Route 66. They're both on the slight side, but they offer insights into the program's and they're a nice companion to viewing the shows. Rawson's Naked City book features a list of favorite episodes compiled by the author and series fans. These include the Rodman scripts for Murder is a Face I Know, A Hole in the City, New York to L.A., The Tragic Success of Alfred Tilloff, and One of the Most Important Men in the Whole World. There is no such list in his Route 66 book, but three of my favorite Rodman scripts from that series are Like a Motherless Child, A Bridge Across Five Days, and Welcome to the Wedding. Like the Twilight Zone, all episodes of Naked City and Route 66 are available on DVD. As Rodman and Serling continued on in television, they both had hits and misses. Serling continued writing until his tragically untimely death in 1975 at just 50 years old. Serling was once described as Hollywood's angry young man. A biography of Chayefsky is titled Mad as Hell. We have referenced Howard Rodman's anger earlier. They all had reason to be angry. There's plenty to be angry about. And in their writing, they often articulated reasons for anger. Maybe if we read and listen to their words, we can find some answers to make the world a better place. The work of Serling and Chayefsky might be a bit easier to find, but seek out the work of Howard Rodman. I think you will be glad you did. Thanks again to Adam Rodman for giving us personal insight into the life and career of his father. I'm Morris Eckhouse, host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo was designed by Jeff Santala. Thanks to Alan Feniger, Bruce Bonner, Mark Presser, Greg Brown, and Carl Mastercola. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhouse. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwen Company, 